Buffalo Bills fans, welcome back to Believe, a Buffalo Bills fan podcast here on buffalorumblings.com and everywhere else you go to get your fine Bills-related podcasts. We are thrilled you took the time, however and wherever you're listening to us, on whatever platform you're checking us out, that you chose to make Believe part of your routine. Uh, My name is John Boccasino alongside Jamie D'Amico. We both thank our audience members for their support. And uh, Jamie, it's great to have you back, buddy. Buddy, it's good to be here. We finally made it together two weeks in a row. I I couldn't be more ecstatic that this is happening. And it's leading up to the most wonderful time of the year, the draft. And you, my friend, came up with a great topic for today's podcast. So I have to give kudos and credit where credit is due. I was actually out golfing uh, Friday afternoon with a buddy of mine, Ian, who's a huge Bills fan. He was with me uh, for the Patriots Bills win debacle on Monday Night Football. Uh, he was there for the wild card win over the Patriots. And I was kind of just being like, you know, hey, I, I'm, I'm kind of going through some ideas in my head uh, for some some podcasts leading up to the draft. But, you know, we were the whole in our in the name of our podcast is the word fan. And Jamie and I are fans first and foremost. And so my thought process was what good is it going to do for us to go through and be like, Ooh, here are some top prospects to watch at different positions. Cause what we'd be doing is regurgitating what the writers and journalists that we respect have to say. And there's some value to that, but it's not really original. If we're repeating, you know, a lot of what you're seeing and hearing from like Joe Biscalia or Matt Perino or Sal Capaccio. So I was like, I'm struggling for some creative content and Ian actually had the brilliant idea that spawned today's podcast conversation that I've kind of fine tuned for our audience here today on this episode of believe with the draft coming up in uh, less than two weeks, Jamie and I are going to take a trip down memory lane and highlight the biggest gems in Buffalo's draft history and the biggest busts in Buffalo's draft history. So we're going to go through, we're going to peel off the Band-Aid, there's going to be some ugly conversations, and there's going to be some, (laughs) who boy, how did the Bills fleece the rest of the league and find this talented player uh, later in the draft? And the only parameters that we're going to set up for this conversation, Jamie, is it has to have been somebody drafted. I could make one exception, but really, I think 1977 and later is a really good okay. point of demarcation. That's when the league had expanded uh, to a 16-game schedule. They had gone down from, I mean, back in the day, the drafts had 30 rounds. I mean, 20 to 30 rounds of picking players. Like, of course, you're going to find some busts and some gems, you know, in some of those, you know, long draft classes. But we figured like the 12-round draft class that started in 1977 and then morphed into the seven rounder that we know today would be a really good baseline for this conversation. I'm so thrilled, Jamie, that you love this topic. I think we'll have a really good time today. Yes. And I think that out of the gate, though, we should define what a gem and a bust is. And I will start with this. 
a bust is a person who comes in with high expectations. Typically speaking, we're going to say it probably had to be a first round pick. The other side of it is if it's a first round pick and it's not high, but the Bills had to give up a number of assets in order to trade up for that person, it definitely counts as a bust. A gem, however, is a player that came in with less fanfare. So first rounders, even second rounders, in my opinion, John, a first or second rounder, even a third rounder, you expect them to make the team and contribute. Would would you say? Wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would say. I mean, the only and and I'm not going to give away. Uh, I I'm really excited. I've got a lot of players on my list uh, of both <laughs> sides. You know that I could could reel off here, but like I feel like it's okay. You know, let's let's just let's just throw it out there and have a have part of the conversation live on the podcast. One of the guys I feel like, and I, I wouldn't give him as one of my official, and we're going to go through and pick three gems and three busts for each of, each us, of us, and maybe mention some yeah. honorable mentions uh, out there as well. But one of mine that I feel like needs to be mentioned as an unbelievable value and gem, the Buffalo Bills got Thurman Thomas with the 40th overall pick in 1988. Yeah. 39 other players went before the dynamic two-way Hall of Fame running back. And to me, that is such a gem. And it came in the second round, but you can't argue the merit and the value of getting Thurman Thomas with the 40th pick that year. Well, I I agree. He was considered a first-round talent that fell down the board because teams were concerned about a knee injury that he had in college and knee surgery. So... It really fell into the Bills' lap and helped launch the Buffalo Bills dynasty of the early 90s. So that was 1989, and he was good out of the gate. Yeah, I mean, you're 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 not going to find many players in. I mean, now in the modern NFL, you can find running backs that put up, but no one puts up the numbers that Thurman did uh, these days. But you look at him being a five-time Pro Bowler, MVP in 1991. You know, he had almost 12,000 rushing yards, uh, 16,500 yards from scrimmage. He was a legit. He was Marshall Falk before Marshall Falk, where you yep. had to worry about him being such a dynamic pass catcher and a scat back uh, who could follow the holes to glory and and break off big runs. And the injury that he had, really, he should have been a first round pick and the Bills did luck their way into it. But isn't that also part of a gem when it comes to circumstances falling your way and somebody you know falls when they maybe should have gone a little higher? Absolutely. So that's kind of my little like asterisk to start off. And, you know, Jamie, I I know we kind of uh, we mentioned and and I I agree, though, with your caveat. Most of the players that I've got on my list, the busts were high picks or picks higher up in the first, second or third round that really were supposed to be franchise defining players who just fell flat for whatever reason. Um, and, and there's a bunch of reasons you'll see. There's a bunch of cases. I mean, not every bust is uh, created the same, which will be fun to kind of go through. And I feel yeah. like in that vein, let's start off negative. Let's skew negative okay. and go with the bust first. And we'll close with some optimism. Always leave them on a high note. Hell yeah, buddy. And you know what? Uh, I didn't tell you about this before our podcast, but in a predetermined coin flip, you have won the right to go first in the bust. So who is going to lead off your okay. bust? I am going to lead off with the number one overall pick from 1979. 
That would be a linebacker out of Ohio State that the Bills took at the very top of the draft. His name is Tom Cousineau. And the reason this is a flop, but not necessarily the biggest flop that they've ever had, is Tom Cousineau never even played a down for the Buffalo Bills. This was back when Ralph Wilson was doing his Ralph Wilson things and being totally unwilling to play pay, to pay players the going rate. And when they offered Tom Cousineau a laugher of a contract, he elected to go and play in the Canadian Football League for the Montreal Alouettes, who paid him double what Buffalo's initial offer was. Now, four years later, he decided he wanted to play in the NFL. And the Houston Oilers attempted to sign him, but the Bills back then had the ability to match that offer and retain his rights, which they did. And then they worked out a trade to the Cleveland Browns. Now, this is where it gets interesting, John Baccasino, because in 1982, the Bills worked out a draft or a draft pick scenario that wasn't supposed to be that because Cousineau was traded to the Cleveland Browns for another linebacker named Chip Banks and, and a draft pick. Well, Chip Banks refused to report to the Buffalo Bills. So, as a result, in order to complete the trade, the Browns sent the number 14 overall pick to the Buffalo Bills in the 1983 draft, where the Bills selected Jim Kelly. That's such a circuitous uh, story and fortuitous bounce for the Bills because, Jamie, I'm going to connect the dots, and that's an unbelievable story of the Bills going from failure in the draft board. And 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 I've got some background on Cousin O that I want to mention here too. But you know, <laughs> to connect the dots onto why this was both a bust and also a brilliant turn of events for the Bills, the Bills essentially mm-hmm. turned OJ Simpson into Jim Kelly. And let me explain how for those that are listening, Tom Cousin O. When the Bills traded O.J. Simpson to the 49ers, they got a first-round draft pick. That pick turned into Tom Cousineau. So you say you go from O.J. Simpson to Jim Kelly in one draft pick. How about that? (laughs) (laughs) And that year, O.J. Simpson was completely washed up. He didn't even make it through a full season, and the Bills ended up with the draft pick to draft Cousineau. Granted... They had a, I mean, they had to wait a good four or five years for this to come to fruition. And then, you know, Jim Kelly didn't even sign right away. So <laughs> it was a long chain of events, but thank you, Juice. Yeah, there's um, there's a, a story that our very own Matt Warren did back in 2011 talking about the Cousineau pick. And I guess besides lowballing him on money that they were going to offer the uh, first uh, first round draft pick, the Bills no-showed him uh, at a hotel. They they told him they were going to pick him up uh, at a hotel for dinner uh, and then give him a ride back, and they were going to go through a physical and introduce Cousin O. And the Bills ghosted him. They ghosted their own first-round draft pick with no explanation, got the relationship off to a horrible start, and thankfully the Bills salvaged something out of this by bringing in the pick that led to Jim Kelly. But boy, Jamie, that's a darn good 
number one bust to bring up there. Somebody who never played a down for the Bills and went to the Montreal Alouettes instead of playing for the Bills. But the reason I wanted to bring it up first is it did have a silver lining, like you mentioned. You know, it's it's not the worst of all the picks because if you had the foresight to know what that was going to turn into at the time, it didn't. It, I mean, it wasn't so bad, but I'm sure it's you know it was a solid four years before people were like, oh, okay, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jamie, I have struggled long and hard with who I want to choose as my first bust. And I'm not going to mention the other ones. If they get picked, they get picked. There's a ton of guys to go off the board. But when you talk about busts, you hit on this. It's not just what does the player contribute or not contribute, but it's also what did the cost, what was the cost associated with getting that player? In that vein, my overall bust, number one in Buffalo Bills draft history. Ladies and gentlemen, J.P. Lossman, come to the stage. Ooh. (laughs) When the Bills wanted a quarterback and they couldn't get Ben Roethlisberger, what did they do? J.P. The Bills in 2004. Now, granted, like Jamie mentioned, the draft class was loaded. Eli Manning, Phillip Rivers, Ben Roethlisberger all went in the top 15 of that draft class. And so the Bills wanted a quarterback. Obviously, they were, you know, they had needed. needed. Yeah, I mean, Drew Bledsoe, the Drew Bledsoe experiment was over with or was on the decline. I believe 2004 was his last year with Buffalo, um, the year that the Bills should have beaten the Steelers backups in week 16 to make the playoffs. And they fell to Willie Parker and I believe Ben Roethlisberger, um, (laughs) a team that the the Bills should have crushed to get into the playoffs. They fell short. And J.P. Lossman was the Bills' first round pick, number 22 overall. Not only was 2004 a fantastic quarterback draft class with three future Hall of Famers in it, The Bills ended up drafting a guy from Tulane, not a football powerhouse, and they had to give up a first round pick in 2005, along with a second and fifth rounder to move back into the first round to get J.P. Lossman. So you not only did J.P. Lossman disappoint on the field, the Bills basically mm-hmm. bypassed a chance. I mean, they could have waited to draft Matt Schaub at pick number 90 if they wanted a quarterback. They could have gotten Vince Wilfork to bolster their defensive line. You know, there were tons of talented players that came off the board immediately after the Bills picked J.P. Lossman. But instead, they end up trading away a first, a second, and a fifth to get a guy who went 10-23 and 23 in his career was injury prone, had one full 16 game season. And outside of a stretch where he and Lee Evans, a fellow 2004 draft pick, had an electric performance against the Miami Dolphins where they hooked up for three touchdown passes. I don't think JP Lossman had any highlights as far as his Bills high, a quarterback career went because it was just bust <laughs> after bust after bust. Okay, but he threw a beautiful deep ball. And he made Lee Evans look good, didn't he? You know what? I, I He did. J.P. Lossman is like your Madden quarterback when you realize you've got an advantage at cornerback and you run streaks or four verticals and just have him <laughs> chuck it up and have Leaf run as fast as he can. 
And it worked to some extent. I mean, there were definitely some connections and some plays uh, where Lossman and Evans look like, you know, a reincarnation of Kelly and Reed. But Lossman never had the accuracy. He never commanded the locker room or the huddle. And it was just such a colossal waste of talent and draft capital to trade up and give up future assets for a guy who won 10 games for the Bills in five seasons. <sighs> Are you depressed that- yet? <laughs> that Adam Sandler looking MF. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's just like, yeah. I mean, here's the thing, too. You know, I, the Bills. Um, the I, I almost feel like JP Lossman. I know there's other examples of this, but JP Lossman was in my mind the first example of a team that I followed following the crunch of quarterbacks getting picked and reaching for somebody when the talent was not matching where he was going to get picked in that draft. I mean, you know, think about like Blaine Gabbert, Christian Ponder, you know, teams do this all the time when it comes to drafts and overreaching. And if the Bills had been patient, like I said, you know, they could have gotten a talented running back in Steven Jackson. They could have gotten Jason Babbitt, a very serviceable linebacker. They could have gotten, you know, I know Carlos Dansby, a game-changing linebacker in the second round. They could have stayed where they were instead of trading up. And that's what makes it such a Mm -hmm. a huge bust to me is how much it took and the fact that the Bills panicked. And one of the things that you just brought up is so important when we're talking about busts, which is the Bills took a player which caused them to not take other players. And let me tell you who I believe is my number two worst pick in Buffalo Bills history. You know what's coming. It's it's tackle Mike Williams. Yep. In the 2002 draft, the Buffalo Bills decided they needed an offensive lineman. And it was true. They absolutely did. They needed to build the line. But they got cute. Everybody knew that the best tackle in the draft was Bryant McKinney. It wasn't even close out of Miami, but no, they decided to go for the larger, more gregarious Mike Williams, who probably won Tom Donahoe over in the, in in the pre-draft meetings. It was probably, I'm going to say it was probably his personality that raced him up the board. Well, he ended up playing four seasons in Buffalo then was out of football for three seasons, came back and played one more for Washington, and then was done. And the majority of the time that he was in Buffalo, he seemed disinterested. He didn't seem like he was trying very hard. He famously told Ralph Wilson that he was depressed. And Ralph Wilson said, me too. Look how much money I gave you for nothing. Jamie, let me let me let me paint you a picture. Tell me if this sounds like a guy worthy of being a number four overall pick in the 2002 draft. And yes, my gosh, what Bill's fortunes might have been changed if Bryant McKinney had been the draft pick instead of, you know, uh, instead of Mike Williams. But you've got a guy who is a freak of nature physically and supposedly had all the attributes and was a stud in college. But it became quickly apparent that Mike Williams could not pass block. Mike Williams Mm -hmm. could not run block. Mm -hmm. Mike Williams had terrible agility, and Mike Williams did not have a great work ethic. 
my God, what a terrible waste of a number four overall pick. So what did the Buffalo Bills leave on the board when they selected him? Pro bowler, Quentin Jammer, Bryant McKinney, all pro, John Henderson, all pro, Dwight Freeney, all pro, Dante Stallworth, Jeremy Shockey, Albert Hainsworth, who, yes, he was a jerk, but he was a good player. Uh, Philip Buchanan, an excellent defensive back. Oh, Hall of Famer Ed Reed was selected after him. Are you kidding me? Oh, that is so bad, Jamie. That is brutal to hear that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's one of those that really just makes you kind of like scratch your head. And again, I get what the Bills were doing with Mike Williams in theory was the right thing. Addressing the offensive Mm -hmm. line, addressing the blind side, getting a mammoth tackle that would be like a wall that the Bills would be able to use to protect you know, whomever was the quarterback, Drew Bledsoe at the time in 2002, but clearly fell off the rails. And the fact that they tried him at three different positions on the offensive line. In fact, I believe they even briefly tried experimenting with him as both a guard um, and as both tackles. And it just did not pan out. No, he he definitely didn't have the footwork to play left tackle. So that that was never going to get off the ground. Well, you mentioned um, one of the guys who would I would have loved being a Syracuse guy to get in that draft pick, a draft class was mm-hmm. Dwight Freeney, uh, who went number 11 overall out of the Qs uh, to the Indianapolis Colts and was a mainstay bookend on their defensive ends, defensive line. My number two overall bust, it's not it's in the exact same vein as Mike Williams when it comes to head scratchers, confounding picks looking into potential and trying to find something and outsmart the rest of the league. To me, let's go back to 2009, Mm -hmm. Aaron F. Maben, the number 11 (laughs) pick out of Penn State, who literally had one good year with the Nittany Lions. And that was enough for the Bills to bypass so many other talented players who they could have had to fill that exact same need uh, instead of taking Aaron Maben, I mean, you know, there, the list goes on. You know, you could have gotten Brian Arakpo, uh, who went number thirteen to Washington, and that's who everybody Ralph. thought they were going to pick, right? Don't you remember the confusion when it's like, wait a minute, they mispronounced Brian Arakpo. They said Aaron Maben. I think they had a stroke on stage. That's not who they meant to announce with their draft pick, right? I mean, there were just again, you know, you got Brian Arakpo, Malcolm Jenkins, uh, Pro Bowl cornerback went three picks after Aaron Maben. You had, I mean, my goodness, Alex Mack, the anchor of the Browns line, went 21st overall. Um, there were so, Clay Matthews went 26th uh, to the Packers uh, that year. You know, I mean, there were so mm. many other talented players out there, but instead the Bills fell in love with what Aaron Maben did during that one season at Penn State and I know edge rushers, that was really the first time I recalled there being such an affinity with the term edge rusher was that mm-hmm. draft class and paying attention to Aaron Maben being somebody who could disrupt the backfield and was a two-way threat, uh, who would be a pass rushing beast. He never got a sack uh, during his two seasons in Buffalo. He actually sacked the Bills more often with the Jets than he even came close to getting pressure <laughs> Uh, on the quarterback during his time in Western New York. And just what a terrible waste of a draft pick. Number 11, and you got nothing out of it. 
I was so upset when they selected him because in Penn State, what he did was overrun the play and then be fast enough that he would come back and then get the quarterback. He had no moves. He had no strength. He couldn't keep on weight. He dropped down to like somewhere around 220 pounds and was trying to play defensive end. Like you just can't do it. He tried putting on weight, but his metabolism wouldn't have allowed it or didn't allow it. And had the Bills done what everybody expected them to do, which was draft Brian Arakpo, who became an All-Pro, you can make a case that that might have been one of the best drafts in Buffalo Bills history because they followed that up by drafting Eric Wood, Jarris Bird, and uh, who's the guard? What is his name? Starts with an L. Oh, Andy uh, Levitre. Levitre, that's right. The guard. Yeah, the inside yes. lineman. Interior lineman. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, that was very solid work in the top of that draft with the exception of that. And you know why that happened. It's because the Bills were like, we're going to do the Tampa 2 defense. And Dick Jaron was like, oh, you're supposed to have little guys for the Tampa 2. No, you're supposed to have fast guys for the Tampa 2, meaning your linebackers have to be able to run. You don't draft guys just because they're undersized, dummy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Jamie, it's... um. Yeah, there, there's there's this chart I'm looking at on uh, Pro Football Reference for the 2009 draft class, <laughs> and it's got the accumulated value for the team that drafted the player that they drafted. Number one that year was Matthew Stafford. His value okay. is 99. Now, there's some lower ones along the way. I mean, uh, you know, it wasn't a fantastic top of the draft class. You know, Mark Sanchez went fifth overall. Um, BJ Raji went to the Packers. So a lot of these values, though, are like anywhere from like 19 to 99. No, Sean Moreno has a 32 or Rockpo's got a 33. Aaron Mabin's got a two <laughs> for the value, a two with the number 11 overall pick. I mean, just what an absolute waste. And I feel like I feel dirty every time I talk about Mabin because he easily could be the biggest overall bust in Bill's history uh, and the draft picks. But we have to continue with this train of depression before we get to our optimism with the Bill's gems out there. Who is your third bust you want to mention? I'm going to go with, and this is this was actually tough. I've got a lot of guys that I'm considering for this position. Um, I, I'm really torn, but I'm going to go with EJ Manuel. Uh, only because he was drafted so far ahead of slot, almost that it wasn't even fair to EJ Manuel. The guy was looked at as as being worthy of somewhere between the second and fourth round, but the Bills took him at the 16th overall pick in round one because basically Buddy Nix, fuddy-duddy Buddy, decided that he absolutely had to leave his legacy with the Buffalo Bills, and he wasn't going to retire until he got them a quarterback in what was no, a notoriously bad quarterback class. E.J. Manuel was the guy that the Buffalo Bills sold to us as being the next guy because he had really big hands and a strong arm. Well, it took watching him maybe two or three games before I personally was like, 
this guy does not have it. And of course, us being Bills fans, we had to make excuses for the guy for years like, oh, but they didn't give him a chance and he wasn't supposed to start. He was supposed to be a project. He just, he couldn't play. He, yeah. he just wasn't good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's Captain Check, uh, Captain, uh, you know, hard count uh, was the main yes. skill that EJ had. If you needed it was a fourth and one and you want to draw the opposition off sides, EJ Manuel is your guy. Only for a first round draft pick. He was good. He that. was. It was his best redeeming. I mean, although I will say, Jamie, I want to give EJ. I feel like that whole season was mismanaged by Doug Marone because Doug Marone didn't care about developing a rookie quarterback. He wanted to make the playoffs and no. use that as a springboard to get a better job. So when they brought in Kyle Orton uh, to try to salvage the season and the Bills almost made the playoffs. You know, that year they had that loss. They beat the Packers at home uh, in one of the best games I've ever been at in the stadium. Uh, Bakari Rambo had a couple picks of Aaron Rodgers and the Bills were in the playoff hunt. Well, I wonder just how much the yo-yoing with EJ Manuel in and out of the starting lineup really messed with the kid's confidence and his development. Because under a better circumstance, I think EJ Manuel could have been a, a serviceable to pretty decent quarterback in the league. Not worth the 16th overall pick. But just a little food for thought there. You, if you could see the look on my face, <laughs> why? Why do we in Bill's Mafia continue to believe in guys that prove <laughs> they were terrible? <laughs> oh my god! Uh. Oh, okay. So there is a video on YouTube of every pass attempt he had to TJ Graham, another wonderful draft pick that that the Bills had, and. Three quarters of them are completely uncatchable. There's you. It doesn't matter what your confidence looks like. You don't throw it eight feet above somebody's head on a four yard out if you have any <laughs> skill whatsoever. Oh, oh you just yeah, sorry, me. buddy. Oh man, if you were in my presence, I would, I would give you a good <laughs> finger wagon. <laughs> <laughs> You're a lot bigger than me, so I wouldn't touch you. <laughs> yeah, that, that's the reason we want to get these depressing comments out of the way first so we can get to the gems uh, part of this podcast. So I, in that vein, Jamie, I will be quick with my last one, and then I'll give you some honorable mentions to go through. And it's so hard to think about where I want to go with my last one, but I feel like given where – you mentioned the slotting and the value of where a player should be. Uh, compared to where they were drafted. And there's so many guys I could go with, but I have to go with John McCargo as my final of my top three busts. This guy was given a third round draft grade by Mel Kuyper, by all the talking heads. And yet somehow the Bills are like, we'll take him in the first round, 26th overall. Uh, Santonio Holmes uh, went right around the same time that McCargo did. Nick Mangold went 29th. Joseph Livin let a die. The running back went to the Colts with the 30th pick overall. <laughs> and yet the Bills draft John McCargo, who was part of a North Carolina State defensive line where their hole was better than the parts. And what I mean by that is collectively, all of the edge rushers and defensive linemen for the North Carolina State football team made up a really good unit. But individually, they were weak and they did not hold their own. And McCargo had one start in 44 career games um, 
with the Bills. He never played more than 11 games. He never got after the quarterback with any sort of consistency um, that the Bills expected him to. He basically, I think he finished with two and a half sacks uh, for his career with the Bills. Uh, Just a terrible waste of draft picks. So John McCargo, welcome to the class. And that was the one that I was really torn on. I was going to say John McCargo, but I, I I pulled back at the last second. And, you know, when he was selected, that was such a head scratcher. The Bills gave up draft capital, which the Cowboys gladly took. And he was like the fourth best lineman on his team. Yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> yep. No, you're absolutely right. You give up draft picks to get somebody who, again, is not very talented, not very accomplished, and ended up being a horrible pick in Bill's history. Is there one or two honor- dishonorable mentions you want to just throw out there and make the crowd go, oh, uh, honestly, I want to get off this topic. All right. I'm going <laughs> to spare you mine. I'll give you very quickly no explanations in no particular order. Defensive end Eric Flowers, the next Bruce Smith. That didn't pan out. Wide receivers James Hardy and TJ Graham uh, both deserve to be up there for being absolutely awful uh, draft picks. Terrell Troop, the defensive lineman, and a throwback, Jamie, that you probably recall because you're an old school football guy who has paid attention to the Bills for quite some time. James Williams, 1996, 16th overall pick um, as a cornerback out of Fresno State. What a waste. Oh, my God. That guy had no ball skills whatsoever. If the ball was in the air, he was lost. Yeah, absolutely. A terrible, terrible draft pick. With that, we've pulled off the Band-Aid on the negatives. Now, Jamie, give us your all-time draft gem for the Bills. I, I think you and I agree that we are going to agree. On who the best draft steal in Buffalo Bills history ever was. And I want to hold off till the end on that one. Uh, But I want to start with a recent fan favorite. And I want to say drafting Kyle Williams in the fifth round in the 2006 NFL draft. Oh, what a wonderful selection that was. You know, he's a guy who came in a little bit undersized. His arms were a little short. But he became the heart and soul of those Bills teams in the late aughts and through the teens. And I am just so happy that in his final season, not only did they get him a touchdown, but he got to play in the playoffs. And the guy deserves to be on the Wall of Fame. He does. And this is such an appropriate time to mention Kyle Williams because, Jamie, did you know uh, we just celebrated the 16th anniversary of one of the greatest trades in Bills history. The Bills dealt Eric Moulds to the Houston Texans for a throwaway fifth-round draft pick. That pick turned into Kyle Williams in 2006. Ooh, very nice. I did not know that. Yeah, that was when Moulds was at the very, very, very end of his uh, productive run, and you know he there there wasn't a future for him with the Bills with his declining skill set. And you find out the heart and soul of the franchise, you know, an unbelievable anchor for that defensive line. So great that Kyle Williams uh, has been honored the way he has. He needs to get on the Wall of Fame. You're absolutely right. Just a fantastic value pick, number one thirty four overall in the 2006 draft class as a fifth rounder out of LSU. The heart and soul of some pretty terrible Bills teams, but. 
he you you rooted so hard for Kyle Williams and the fact that he did get mm-hmm. that playoff berth and he got that touchdown and I'll never forget watching the video in the locker room when Andy Dalton connects with Tyler Boyd for that touchdown on fourth down to get the Bengals into the to have the Bengals beat the Ravens and send the Bills into the playoffs and there's Kyle with his sons going ballistic and then crying it was just I I mean. It tugged my heartstrings <laughs> for sure. I was just so happy for that guy and happy for myself. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Get into the playoffs on New Year's Eve. I mean, it's a great reminder every single year of the beauty of the playoffs and the Bills getting in there. And now that we're used to being in the playoffs consistently, you can take a step back and appreciate how special that season was for the Bills to snap the drought. Hmm. Well, Jamie, I've got a so- lot of options I could go with for mine, but... I'm also going to go with a fan favorite to start off my gems all time. And you would be hard pressed to find someone who contributed more with lower expectations than my first guy, Stevie Johnson. Pick number 224, buddy. 224 in the 2008 draft class. You talk about late round gems who just far exceeded their potential. It's a Kentucky product, Stevie Johnson. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. A, absolutely a fan favorite. The first white receiver in Buffalo Bills history to put up back-to-back 1,000-yard seasons. Amazing. That's insane when you think about Andre Reid and Eric Moulds and Lee Evans, you know, James Lofton, all the talented receivers the Bills have had. And Stevie Johnson was the first one to do that. Stevie Johnson was the first wide receiver, I recall, that made Darrell Revis look mortal. Yes. He would have those quick feet at the line of scrimmage and he would burn Revis on the button hooks or the quick outs or the slant patterns. Just an unbelievable player Stevie Johnson was. He... Yeah, when you had Ryan Fitzpatrick throwing to Stevie Johnson, the Bills were the ultimate underdog (laughs) team with those two as your quarterback wide receiver threat. You know, the numbers he put up over three seasons, he had 3000 plus receiving yards, 23 touchdowns during that three year period. Just an unbelievable uh, value pick for the Bills. So for me, I'm taking Stevie Johnson. I think that is a fantastic selection. Um, I'm going to go to the Super Bowl era for my next pick. A guy that was selected. You're going to do it. I I know where you're going, buddy. And I commend you for waiting this long to do it. Uh, I think I'm going with somebody you're not expecting. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-huh. Let's see who, who you got. This is a guy who in the 1987 draft was picked in the 11th round. You knew this one was coming? You're a brick house, buddy. You're a brick house, all right. (laughs) Pick 283 overall. The Bills selected a 6'6", 325-pound tackle from the small school Alabama A&M. That was Howard House Ballard, who became an all-pro for the Buffalo Bills. He made two Pro Bowls in 1992 and 1993. And he was the immovable object who also had quick feet. He was the guy who very famously missed a block or missed a blocking assignment in 1989 that tipped off the whole bickering Bills debacle when Jim Kelly went to the podium with his injured shoulder afterwards. Uh, and as, as I was saying, 
Jim Kelly got injured as a result of that missed block. Jim Kelly said, not everybody here is very good, and we know exactly who the issue is. Everybody does. Uh. (laughs) Well, that ticked off Thurman Thomas, so he went back at Jim Kelly, and they just went at each other after that. Well, Howard Ballard, to his credit, he stayed quiet. But man, was he instrumental in those first couple of Super Bowl teams. Eventually, he went to he went to the Seattle Seahawks as a very highly paid free agent. And then he broke his leg in a game which ended his career. But listen to this. He then became a sheriff's deputy in Alabama. What? (laughs) Can you imagine a dude that size being like, hey, knock it off? (laughs) That's a fantastic story. And, and, you know, Jamie, I actually thought long and hard about taking House over Stevie just because I I, I commend you for doing your – I knew you would. You're – you know, you've got a good attention to history and, you know, the fact that he was an 11th rounder in 1987 uh, for a a little-known school – and really turned into one of the biggest finds in Bill's draft history. Um, unbelievable production for House Ballard, anchoring those Bill's offensive lines. He was so reliable, um, not missing a single game in his Bill's career, uh, pro bowler, uh, all pro honors. And the fact that like he was just such a reliable uh, option on the line to get you know Jim Kelly and the Kagon offense going to spring Thurman Thomas to that 2000 yards from scrimmage season that he had in 1991, his NFL MVP season and a four year starter on the Super Bowl for somebody picked in the 11th round. Mm -hmm. You you can't match that productivity. And, you know, it's kind of it kind of speaks to the unbelievable genius of the Bills front office back then. They had such a knack for finding unbelievable talent at the small schools. They just they found guys that would work in their system that had a lot of talent. They just didn't have the the strong competition, and the Bills could project players. And he was just one of them. You know, Alabama A and M is not a football powerhouse, but he was a powerhouse right now. No, no, they are not. And I like your use of the word powerhouse for House Ballard. Well done, I didn't do it on purpose, but I think <laughs> on a subconscious level, it was there. <laughs> well, the guy I'm going to go with for my uh, number two uh, steal, if you will, for the Buffalo Bills in the draft position of being a hidden gem. I'm going to go back to the 2003 draft class. And you talk about little known schools. Northwestern State had a cornerback named oh, Terrence McGee. Yeah. The Bills took him number 111 overall in the fourth round. And you know what? He was a very good cover corner, but I'm putting McGee in there for both his balance as a cover corner and his return game Mm -hmm. contributions. There was one game in particular where the Bengals were on their way to making the playoffs in 2005. Terrence McGee had a 99-yard kickoff return for a touchdown. Then he had a 46-yard pick six to keep the Bengals from winning that game, becoming the first player in NFL history with a kickoff return and a Mm -hmm. pick six in the same game. For pick number 111 in the fourth round, you got 17 career interceptions. You still had the franchise's all-time leader uh, in kickoff return yardage, uh, kick return touchdowns. He had five kick returns for touchdowns 
in his career. At the time he retired, that was top five in the league. Unbelievable value for very low expectations. The fourth round, pick number 111. Welcome to the team, Terrence McGee. I loved Terrence McGee. He was one of my absolute favorite players of the drought era. And in 2004, he made the Pro Bowl on the strength of three kick returns for touchdowns, including a 104-yarder. It was just unbelievable because every time the Bills were returning a kick or a punt around that time period when Bobby April was the special teams coach, there was always a chance that it was going to go all the way for a touchdown. Every time. He was just he was just that dangerous. I mean, he had that electrifying return against the Cowboys on that Monday night debacle where the Bills <laughs> let a late lead slip through their fingers, but it wasn't his fault or George Wilson's fault. It was, you know, <laughs> Dick Geron and the whole Bills being a terrible manager of the clock and you know not <laughs> slowing down the Cowboys offense out there but we're keeping things positive and Terrence McGee yeah such a, a, a he he was like a poor man's Devin Hester but he could be yeah. just as efficient and just as deadly in the return game but he was a far a, a far superior defensive back to Devin Hester who really didn't belong anywhere on the field except for returning kicks Terrence McGee turned himself into a lockdown corner he did, absolutely. I mean, he would go toe-to-toe with some of the best receivers in the league and hold his own very, 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 very admirably. Yes, he absolutely did. Um, and speaking of defensive backs, I'm going to stick with that for my final hidden gem. And I'm going to go with a, a very interesting player, a guy who was born in France, who attended North Carolina Central, that the Bills drafted in the 12th round, number 309 overall in the 1977 draft. I'm going old school here and going with defensive back Charles Romes, who for the time was a big dude. Uh, defensive back in the 70s at six foot one, 190 pounds, that was larger than expected. He played in 156 games in his career, had 28 interceptions, including a pick six in there. And he was the guy that the Bills leaned on to lock up with the top receivers on the other teams. So Mark Duper, Mark Clayton, man, they did not look forward to tangling with Charles Rome's. Now, unfortunately for him, he was never on a very good team. I mean, maybe the early 80s, you had you had a playoff team in there, but he suffered through some really down seasons with the Buffalo Bills, but he was a bright spot along with Steve Freeman, who was a pretty darn good safety back there. Um, they made plays. He also was a guy who, because of his size, you come up and support the run. He's an old school dude, and I liked Charles Rome's when I was a kid. Yeah, Jamie, I'm so glad you mentioned Charles Rome's because I feel like he gets lost in Bill's history because of when he played uh he was buffalo's mr irrelevant i mean he was basically the last player um that the bills had in their draft class for that class Mm -hmm. year uh back in 1977 um and the fact that he gave the bills 10 good years and was just an unbelievable corner who you know yeah you're right people were afraid to go up against him and that's that's a remarkable accomplishment when you think about it yeah absolutely and that was, you know, that that was not the 
that was not the most loaded draft class. Um, there were some guys that had, you know, that, that had some nice careers in there. Um, you had Tony Dorsett as a Hall of Famer, but you know, nobody who really made a a huge impact. Uh, you know, when you look on down the list, there's not a lot of players who are memorable. And to take a draft year that was rather down and find somebody like that when people are basically phoning it in, I mean, God, you have a bad draft class to begin with. Who's paying attention when the third round rolls around? Well, <laughs> apparently the Bills were. <laughs> what uh, is there a memory that stands out to you most about Charles Rome's and his ability as a corner? Yeah, uh, there was a play that was the Bills in 1984. That was when they switched to the red helmets. They went out and they played in the Kingdome in Seattle and the Bills played above their heads. They had only won two games that year and they played Seattle really tough. And there was a deep pass from Dave Craig intended for Steve Largent and Rome's, if I'm remembering this correctly, he basically turned himself into the intended receiver. He boxed out Largent and he sort of caught the ball over his shoulder, just really soft hands. And it looked like he he was tracking it the entire way and was able to turn around and make a, a nice return on that. Now, I was young. That was in 1984. I was eight years that season I was eight years old and that was when I first watched the Bills ever in my life um and that's when I decided I was going to be a fan because that was also the season that I went to my very first game now buddy I want you to take it away with the best ever diamond in the rough that the Bills have uncovered in the NFL draft And I think you're going to go with a guy, if I'm not mistaken, you're going to go with a guy who probably also came from a small school. Am I right? Yes, you're right. But um, I'm going to uh, cheat uh, a little bit with this one because I'm going to break my own rule and I'm going back to 1962. And I know that's before the parameters that we set up, but I'd be remiss to not mention Tom Sestak out of McNeese State who quite possibly was one of both Buffalo's best defensive players and completely underrated by the modern NFL fan. Um, Granted, it was a totally different game back then, but he was taken in the 17th round. 17th round. Mm -hmm. He was the one that basically was the anchor for those Buffalo Bills AFL championship winning teams uh, in the mid 60s. He's a member of the AFL Hall of Fame, an unbelievable physical threat. The fact that he was one of the best defensive linemen to ever play the game and the Bills found him in the 17th round. He fueled those back to back AFL title teams in 64 and 65. The draft was a different beast back then. There, the scouting was very, very different than it is right now. But somebody recognized the fact that Tom Sestak was a guy who, and he he bought, here's a fun story about Tom Sestak. Besides the fact, if you don't know him, Google him. S-E-S-T-A-K. Unbelievable find for the Bills. When the Bills drafted him to when he showed up for training camp, He put on pure muscle, 40 pounds of pure muscle between the draft and when he showed up to training camp. And the the coaches were like, 
who the hell is this guy? We didn't draft this guy. We drafted somebody who was thinner and leaner. Well, he proved them all wrong. Again, an unbelievable uh, contributor for Buffalo's defenses of the mid-60s. He passed away about 10 years ago, but he's a wall of famer. Make sure you get yourself familiar with Tom Sestak, an unbelievable gem in a 17th round draft pick. So, Jamie, I cheated, but there's my third one. You cheated, and I'm just going to go ahead and throw Mike Stratton into the mix as well since we're cheating. He's the one who broke Keith Lincoln with that vicious hit in the backfield in the 64 AFL championship game. And he was taken one year after Sestak, uh, I believe uh, Mike Stratton. Do you know when oh, he was a 13th round mm-hmm. pick? So talk about nailing your draft picks right there, though, that late in the draft, unbelievable value. But when it comes to value and as much as we can hit on the Tom Sestaks and the House Ballards, there's one that we've left out that Jamie and I both agreed off air had to be our number one overall combined value as a draft gem. Jamie, Cutstown is not necessarily a powerhouse school. That's in Pennsylvania, However, right? From what I hear, yes, it's, it is in Pennsylvania. It's a small, small school that produced one of the greatest wide receivers ever, Andre Reed. Yes, Sir. I mean, really, there's no explanation needed beyond that. I mean, Andre Reed, fourth rounder, pick 86. 86. You talk about Thurman Thomas being the 40th overall pick. There were 85 players that went above Andre Reed in 1985. Including Bruce Smith. Go figure. He went kind of high, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. They, they didn't have to. He didn't have to wait too long to hear his name called. But Andre <laughs> Reed. May have even been surprised he was picked as early as he was. Yeah, because really, I mean, Cutstown University is a, a very, very small school indeed. Um, they they named, I'm surprised it took him this long, but they finally renamed their football stadium Andre Reed Stadium uh, in honor of Andre Reed. It's all a side topic into just how great Andre Reed was. And he came from such humble beginnings that Jamie and I both were like, look, you come down with 13,000 receiving yards. 86 touchdowns, seven straight Pro Bowls. That's unbelievable value for the fourth round. There's just not a lot that needs to be said, right? <laughs> yeah, I think we kind of nailed it there. I'm proud of you for House Ballard. That was a great pick. Oh, thanks. Um, I want to throw an honorable mention out there. He was a guy who didn't put up a lot of stats, but he was a valuable player to the Buffalo Bills in the mid to late 80s. Um, a player that I really... I know who you're going to say. I really liked him. Can I, can I, can I, can I guess it? Yeah. Is it Mark Pike? No, no, it wasn't a guy who had much better ups. <laughs> yeah, Mark Pike was not known for his ups, <laughs> although he was a fantastic <laughs> special teams tackler. So now that I've spilled your thunder uh, from your, your pick, Jamie, who's your honorable mention? It, it is a guy whose autograph I got on a pennant along with Daryl Talley and Scott Norwood. It's Rob Riddick. Number 40. Ah, that's an excellent pick. Rob Riddick, what was his uh, What was his round, his draft pick status? Uh, he was, in 1981, a ninth-round pick, number 241 overall. And he was a leader for the Bills. You know, when they made the playoffs in 88, 89, you know, it was, it was he who was getting phased out in favor of Thurman Thomas. But when the going got tough, they put the ball in his hands because they trusted him. And oh, by the way, his younger brother, Lewis Riddick, 
is the former general manager of the Eagles and talking head with ESPN. Look at that. It's all in the family. Yeah, yeah. There's always a tie-in here on Believe, a Buffalo Bills fan podcast. But yes, uh, Rob Riddick had he had really good springs, and the guy could dive from yards away and go, oh, he was one of the... Because it's really a dead art at this point. The running backs that dive over the top of the pile to get into the end zone or to get short yardage, that's just not something that they do anymore. But he was a sight to watch when he did. Well, that was a great honorable mention to throw in there to go with uh, my guy, Mark Pike, who recently passed away after a very underrated career you know, with the Buffalo Bills. And, uh, you know, Jamie, we're sitting here now coming up on an hour. We've had a lot of fun breaking through, in our opinions, Buffalo's draft busts and hidden gems. We would love to keep this conversation going on social media. So if you've got some people that you think we missed, if you want to mention and make a case for one of your guys, get involved with us on Twitter. Jamie is at the Jamie D'Amico and I am at John Boccasino. You can also get us on the article on buffalorumblings.com when it posts. Jamie, great chat today, buddy. Man, this was fun. And oh, before I go, I just want to mention that Rob Riddick had 15 touchdowns in 1988. Oh, yeah. Damn. What a season. (laughs) I will will post a YouTube video of every touchdown. (laughs) Jamie's a man of his word. When he says he'll do that, you can follow him on Twitter to see all of the great content out there. And uh, we had a lot of fun doing this here on Believe. It's part of our draft coverage next week on the podcast. You're not going to want to miss it. Jamie and I are going to pretend to be Brandon Bean. We are going to do live mock drafts during the podcast with all of Buffalo's draft picks. You can hear us be like, Who the hell is that guy? Why should I take this cat? As we go through and make our picks, as the Bills get ready for draft day, it's guaranteed to be entertaining here on the big board. For my colleague, Jamie D'Amico, I'm John Boccasino signing off for Bill Eve, a Buffalo Bills fan podcast. 